Welcome to Inside Groove, the only motorsports show where super modifieds are king, methanol is aromatic, and the drivers carry their balls in a bag. Inside Groove is powered by IPC Indy, creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Here's your host and fellow superholic, Race Chaser Media's Tom Baker. Welcome back to Inside Groove as we begin another week of, uh, well, just having fun here uh, on the Groove. It's our 32nd episode. You know who I am by now. I'm Tom Baker. And, uh, well, if, if you were expecting Joe Gozik, you'll have to wait a bit. Uh, Joe and I missed each other this week for a couple of reasons. One, his schedule was very full. And, uh, two, I was sick for most of the week and uh, had all I could do to get through our live shows that we do so um now uh it is saturday morning as we record this and we were looking forward to having two guests this week but we'll have just one and he is joining me now and i am really excited about this uh brian herb is with us this week and brian is a driver that i always admired as a youngster growing up at oswego because i heard early on that he was a teacher i had an uncle who was a teacher and always just was obviously taught to respect uh teachers and and that profession and uh brian had some of the most beautiful looking supers that any of us have ever seen in our entire lifetimes it is great to have brian herb with us on inside groove as we get started for another week brian thanks for taking some time to come on and talk with us about your career well good morning and thank you for having me it's uh I'm excited here to talk. Well, it's uh, it, it's it's interesting to talk with you, and I want to know first of all, wh- <clears throat> excuse me, what does life, what is life like for Brian Herb now? Um, are you still in New York? Are you are you living elsewhere? Talk about what life consists of for you now. Well, right now um, I live in Florida, down in Naples, Florida, oh. and I build a house down here, and to get out of that cold weather. 60 years of cold weather is enough. Yeah, <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm working on the house, and I'm trying to learn how to play uh, a Lowry organ. So that's pretty much what I am doing down here. Oh, wow. Playing an organ. I love that. Organs are awesome. I think they went out of style way too early. Uh, love the sound of a good organ. But uh, yeah, Well, this this is, they change quite a bit, and I don't want to get into that area, but they're really, I can create any sound from any musical instrument made on it. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? it I mean, it blows my mind. If you want a trumpet or guitar, you name it, I can plug, you know, push the button and up it comes. Yeah, it is, uh, it's amazing. Keyboards are amazing instruments when it yes, comes to that. Lots of choices. Um Let's talk a little bit about uh, your career, and I want to start kind of at the beginning. What got you interested in racing in the first place, Brian? Well, it's, it's kind of a long story, and I'll try to cut short on to it. Uh, I was about 13, and I was in school, and I happened to be in a classroom that you call the study hall, and an older student had a hot rod magazine sitting on his desk, and I asked if I could look at it. And, and of course, it had a 32 Ford 
Model, uh, Model B5 window coupe, and it was a street route. And I, when I got done looking at it, I said, I'm going to build one of these things. And then I got a license, and I loved driving. I, if I could have drove 24 hours a day and not had to sleep, I would have done it probably. And so I, I always liked to drive fast. And uh, about that time when I was in, I think I was a junior in high school, we went to Oswego Speedway. Because I had a butt pal I uh, hung around with, and his uncle had a car up there. Uh, and so we went and looked at the car in the morning, and that night we went to Swedish Speedway, and I sat there. My mouth must have been open. I was I in bet. all of them cars. And I vowed on the way back, I told them, someday I'm going to be out there driving. And they said, you know, they looked and they kind of believed me and everything, but it took till I was 31 years old before I got there. Wow. So do you remember about when it was that you first went to the Speedway? Would that have been in the 60s? Uh, the first race I went to, one of the things that struck in my mind is was Nolan Swift was. I mean, he had, he had a, you know, they were coupes at that time. Okay. 30, 35, 36, 37, Ford and Chevy coupes and stuff like that. And on Nolan Swift, he had little 10 pins that would light up yeah. when he took over the lead. And, uh, well, he was, you know, he was one of the top dogs there. But they were all great drivers and everything. But I, I just was like, wow, this is, this is where I want to be. Now, so. was, your, was your first time in the car uh, the, the, when you drove for Hagen Howard, was that your first time in the Super? Yes. Okay. Yes. How did and that get was, started? Yeah, pardon me? How did that come about? Well... I was, I went to the, uh, I was driving a late model, and at, at Fulton Speedway, uh, Norm Macrith was driving for him at Hagen Howard, and I was yeah. watching their car, and I, of course I heard how good a driver he was, and I'm looking at his car, and he wasn't doing too good at all, and I thought, well, I, I got the equipment now because at the school they provided the equipment for, you know, doing all sorts of things with cars. Right. And so I slided up to him. I says, Norm, when are you going to fix that car? And he says, what do you mean? I says, your camera is way off on your car and your car is out of line. It's, it's, it's never going to work. He says, come with me. So he went over and introduced me to Norm Hagen. Oh. And I told Norm Hagen the same thing. And I says, why don't you bring the car down to me Saturday morning and I'll fix it for you. And I, I you know, I figured, who's this clown anyhow, you know. But anyhow, he says, yeah, <laughs> where are you? And then he says, I says, well, be there at 9 o'clock. And at 9 o'clock, they rolled in. And we proceeded to put it up on the frame machine. And, of course, we had the, you know, the tram bars and the, and the, and the uh, Sometimes it takes me a minute to think of the, of the name of the tool, but we had something you would snap on the front hub, and it would give you the camber caster and stuff like oh, okay. that. And so we proceeded to bend it and straighten it and line it up and do all sorts of things, and he left about 3.30 in the afternoon. And as I was driving home, he says, you coming up there tonight? And I says, yes. Driving home, I'm thinking to myself, what the heck would you think you were doing, Brian? You know, you don't know. You've never even seen one of these things before other than watch it go around the track. Right. But when I got to the track, I got there about 7.30, and they had warmed it up. And I'm kind of, do I go over there or do I stand back and see if they're mad or not? And so anyhow, I went over, and as I was walking up to them, 
one of the crewmen called to me, he says, Brian, Brian, we set fast time tonight. And I'm going, oh, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. <laughs> Saved by reputation, right? He won the race that night. So what a party we had. Get back at he had a they had a really nice garage in Fulton, three bay garage with a, it's just set up for race cars and uh, we went back there and had a what I call a Canadian party and they know how to drink I'm gonna tell you <laughs> it, it, it was I've wild. heard that it, about Canadians <laughs> yeah and he poured me he poured me a drink he says here and I said what is it? he says ah oh, it's a little whiskey it was like a, a, a water glass. Three quarters full of whiskey and a little thing of water on top. I said, I can't drink this stuff. Yeah, come on, you can take some of it, you know what I mean? So I took a few sips and I set it down. I couldn't drink that much. Boy, they did a great time. <laughs> yes, they do. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, so how so that's did... how I got to talking to them or involved with them. They are great people, I want to tell you. Norm Ackroth and Marg and, and Norma Hagen and Lyle Howard and the, and the whole crew, just a terrific bunch. Yeah, they they were they always were a part of the the presence of the pit area, and they did. It was great when I first started going in '73. I think was just after you had stepped out of the, that car, but um, but I remember them being a part of it. And of course, they were always a part of Norm Macra's career, right up to the time when Brian was driving and. Um, and then I think Andy drove later for John Sheridan, but um, you know we really missed Norm, and and it was a shame to hear of his passing um, this past year. But uh, how did how did that go from hey uh, we appreciate your advice, you really helped the car run better to here's this other car over here, why don't you jump in and drive it? Well. I mean, I looked at it sitting there, and I realized it was a backup car. And I had a friend that I hung around with at that time. And I was nervous about asking him to drive it, you know. But this friend of mine, he just went over to him one night there, and he says, Mr. Hagen, how about let Brian take the backup car out there? And so he looked at me, and he says, are you interested in driving it? And I said, yes. Next thing you know, we we had the car down in my shop and at school. And... and if I can diverge a little bit and go to sure. a different place, one of the best things that ever happened to me was have that school because I had all the equipment I ever needed, and I could keep the car there. And that allowed me to, when I got done teaching at 3.30, by quarter to four, I was working on the car. Wow. Yeah, it was it was just absolutely magical for me. That was a luxury that uh, back then I would imagine, especially because... Obviously, back then, there weren't a lot of people who had probably all that equipment available to them as you did. Yeah, well, it was, and that's one of the reasons why, I mean, I, I was teaching how to repair cars and paint them. So, naturally, I had to have a good-looking car. What would it say about me if I showed up with this ratty-looking thing? You right. Know? So, I, I always was trying to leave the impression that it was... Uh, if they went to our school, they were going to learn how to do the painting and straightening and stuff right. Well, that makes sense, for sure. Yes. So yes. what was your... Now, had you... You said you had driven late models prior to driving Supers. What was your first impression when you took the Super Modified out of the Swiggle? <laughs> you want to hear something funny? 
Well, the first time we took it out, it had a small block in it, and it had a cracked cylinder. We didn't know that. Oh. And so we took it out and warmed it up, and the, and the oil tank started <laughs> foaming a little bit. So we looked in it, and it was all that there, yellow butter looking, so which is what wa- oil looks like when you mix water in Sure. So we didn't race it. And, you know, I was talking with uh, Norm Hagen, and, and uh he says, you know, why don't you take the small block out? We told him we the small block was, you know, we took it apart and said the cylinder was cracked and everything onto it. And he said, well, why don't, well, I got a spare big block sitting over there. And he had just put, I think, an aluminum block in. They were just coming in. Okay. And uh, so we took the big block and put it in the car. And I think it took us maybe a week, two weeks to put it in there and get, you know, get it where it belonged and all those additional plumbing or lack of plumbing or so on. Uh, long story short, I go out on the track, and the first thing I'm thinking is, oh, don't be a fool out of yourself. Don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> don't. And whatever you do, don't run into the hot dogs. Boy, don't wreck a hot dog. You're going to be in trouble, Brian. So I'm going around in a caution where you warm up the cars, and I'm going around pretty good. And, you know, I'm, I'm really not too familiar. They just said, this is what we do. Anyhow, Norm Bacon threw the green, and I was coming out of number two, three, and four. And the first thing down the front straightaway goes Jimmy Champagne. Whoa! <laughs> and I'm going down the back straightaway, and he goes, whoa, right by me again. And, and just before that, I said, this, boy, this doesn't look that hard to do. <laughs> so after about six laps... I went in the pits and I said to my head wrench, who Jim Laris, he he was God sent to me. Yes, sir. He says, Jim, how many eight balls are out there? He says, just one. And I said to myself, Brian, you've got a lot of things to learn here on this track. <laughs> there was only one. I swear, he passed me seven, eight times in those, uh, you know, on my six laps around there. That's and funny. That, was, that was an eye opener. So that's that was my first time on the track. And one of the things I liked was, you know, the, the veterans would come over and they'd say, Brian, we want to tell you something. And I said, what's that? And they said, when they give you the move over flag or they tell you to do something, do not do anything that you're doing. We will get by you. But if you yank that car left or right, you'll wreck one of us for sure. And so that's what I, that's one of the first things I learned. Whatever you're doing, you'll keep doing it. They've already set you up, and they'll go on by you like you like you parked the thing. And that's just, you know, so that's what I did. That was one of the first things I learned. Don't do something erratic on that track. Yeah, don't, don't, don't be intimidated either, right? I mean, you really had to just kind of hold your line, and like you said, let everybody else figure out how to get around you when you got the passing flag it was really just a warning to let you know that the faster cars was were coming and right right and a lot of the people when they first went up there they would pull down in or something yeah that guy was already starting but you'd wreck them so i I took that advice whatever i was doing i knew they were a lot better driver than i was and they were going to go by me right and so i i I hope I didn't make too many enemies up there. You know what I mean? <laughs> I've never heard anyone say anything bad about you. Um, what now? You you ran, uh, I think, about a season, right, for for Norm and and Lyle in the O one car, did, or maybe a, a little over a season. 
I, 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 you're kind of must be back from the phone because I have trouble hearing you right now. Oh, I was going to say, I think you you ran um, you ran you ran a full season or maybe a little over a season for uh, for Norman and Lyle before you moved on, right? That's correct. That's correct. And if you're interested in another story, I can tell you another one. You tell me all the stories you got. We love stories on this show. I'm driving the old one, of course, and it's we're getting ready for the classic, you know, the 200 lapper. And sometimes I made the field, sometimes I didn't, because there was I would say between around between 35 and 40 cars in the field, and they only put 24 in the week on the you know on the regular Saturday night. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time with the car being saved on the trailer, which wasn't too much fun, but anyhow. Right. <laughs> yeah. But anyhow, we're going for the classic, and I didn't make the first one. Okay, so we're in the second one, and I'm in the, the heats that you got. They run two heats, and they take the 10 cars out of each heat, and then they run a 20-car semi, and out of that they take 10 cars to fill up the field. And I'm in the sector. We're in. I'm in the semi finally, and I'm running in a tenth spot. And I'm going. Okay, all I got to do is stay here. I don't need. You know, I don't need to drop back. So I'm going in three and four, and here comes Jeff Bodine in the '59 motor, and right on around me. And that must have done something to my brain because I says he doesn't even race here. He's going by me. <laughs> so I'm going to follow him. Whenever he steps on his gas, I'm stepping on my gas. And if I hit that wall, I hit the wall, but I don't care. I, this is crazy. So we go through three and four. He steps on the gas. And my car always pushed. I stepped on the gas, and that car come around the corner down the front straightaway. I could not believe it. I could not believe all this time they would say, get on the gas. And I would say, are you crazy? I just hit the wall harder. <laughs> but what you do is you just put your trust in it. You get on the gas, and it'll turn that car like it. It's unbelievable. And I, we wound up, I think he was seventh, and I was eighth. That, that, and that he taught me how to drive Swigo Speedway that night, that day, that afternoon. And uh, I thank him. For, I never, I never, he probably doesn't know it, but I thank him that I, he, he went by me and he gave me the attitude whatever you do, I'm going to do. That's funny. So that's basically that was more of a confidence thing than anything yes. else. Yeah. I mean, I, if you own the Swigo Speedway by running into the wall, I own that whole place. <laughs> I run into the wall enough times that I own, I own at least three quarters of that place. It's not something to brag about, but it was, it was, it was a, a, an expensive learning curve. Let me put it that way. Well, back then, the cars were much different than they are today, right? I mean, they didn't stick nearly as well. You really had to drive them. And so I think there was a finer line back then between overdriving it and, and being right there on the edge without crossing it, it seemed like. Yes, yes. When I first come out there, I don't know if you remember, but they had these real high tail sections. They, every week somebody yeah. would add another four or five. And, and finally they said, you got these things have got to stop because when you were found, you couldn't see around if there was accident. You don't drive the car in front of you. You drive about three cars in front of you right. is what you're driving. And you couldn't see those things. And uh, so anyhow, they they... The following year, I think it was 73 or something like that, they said, no more of these tail sections. Well, 36 inches high, that's the maximum we're going to allow. So, uh, yeah, that, that, uh, I think it improved the looks of the cars, too, although I, 
I do think oh, yeah. there was something to be said for the high tail swift he had for some reason. I just thought that was pretty cool, but um, that was probably a wise choice. Now, eventually, you moved on from the O one car, and then at some point shortly after that, you brought your own car out. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. And uh, I was, I was. Uh, Looking, we you know you look at the other cars and see what they have and everything. And yeah. I built what we what we call a tank. That thing was way too heavy. Way too, I had bars in that thing every which way you could put a bar in there, you know. <laughs> and because uh, I kept running in the wall, someone says I didn't need this thing to keep me, keep me <laughs> from getting hurt. But uh, anyhow, we 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 did a lot of experimentation on that car, and of course, about this time, out comes Jimmy with his offset roadster with the engine outside of it, and we we knew instantly that that car. I had we had to get in, we had to sell it, get rid of it, and build a new one. And uh, so that's what that's we run that for like two years. The car did work with a wing up on it. That first one would run like gangbusters with a wing on to it. Take the wing off, you could you could pedal a bicycle faster than I could take it. It it also seemed to me that the car you had in seventy five and seventy six, when I look at it, I'm actually it, it so happened that I dug a few old programs out yesterday to to just to read through them and, and uh one of them was your cover and, and um the more I looked at this car over the years and even looking at it now I feel like it has a distinct resemblance to the Nolan Swift car of the time. Was that purposeful or was that just kind of coincidence? Because especially in the front end area and the way the body is constructed, uh, it looks a lot like the, the, the 10 pins. You're absolutely right. I mean, why wouldn't you go copy a winner? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, and I got to know Nolan, and Nolan and I became good friends. And he was, uh, Joe McGarry was on his crew, and towards the end of when I was, yeah, uh, in the first, in the 80s, Nolan would come up and he asked me one time, can I get in your car? And I said, sure, Nolan, take it out if you want, you know what I mean? Because I, I, what better driver, you know, sure. Jimmy and a couple other ones. <laughs> so anyhow, he climbs in the car, he's sitting there, and we got a picture of him sitting in the car. I've of seen we that, did. yeah. And uh, he gets out, and he comes over to me, he says, you know something, Mr. Herb? You know, you like that. Well, that's when he's getting kind of, you know, he's going to say something. Yeah. He says, if I had a car with that kind of room in it, he says, I would have beat everybody every single week. How the heck did you get that room in there? I says, well, you have to remember, Nolan, we took the engines and put them outside the car. It allows you to put a little more foot room in there for you. And so, he, you know, we kind of laughed and talked and uh and, and that was the type of guy he was. He was just, you know, very complimentary and super person to talk to. Yeah, he was. And, and uh, yeah, that was a beautiful-looking car, and I think it, it started a trend. I remember when you first came out with your first offset car. Um, again, I, I, I read through the old programs all the time. And, you know, I remember the nobody knew that, that you were even building a car, it seemed, or at least – you know, word never got out. And of course, back then we didn't have Twitter. So, you know, or social media where everybody instantly knows everything. But, um, you know, you showed up with that first offset car 
and it wasn't even painted. And I just looked at that car and I went, that is the coolest little design. It was just a beautiful shaped car. And it ran top 10 right out of the box. Well, we uh, we decided that, you know, to paint one of these things up the way I did, it took quite a bit of effort. Yeah, back then you, it sure you, did. You don't do it, and you, you know, you don't get a paintbrush and paint it overnight and right. it the next day. So I told Jim, I said, Jim, I'm not painting this car until this car works. Okay? And when we came off with a, out with our, that, that, that car you're talking about, the engine wasn't outside the car yet. Oh, Okay. Okay, and Jimmy had come out with his car, and we said, we just built this car, and it's obsolete. So I only had it for a year. We parked that thing. We, you know, we took the engine out and stuff out, and then we put the engine outside like Jimmy did. And that was the first one that I painted up with that scroll on the front. Yeah. It had the, you know, number 11 with a scroll, like, opened up and yes. stuff. And the reason I did that, I was teaching the kids how to do that kind of I call it trick painting, you know, making, uh, you paint something and so it looks like it has a depth to it. And if you could reach in and, and touch it and if it, whatever you were doing, if you were painting a tree, you would think you would feel another tree right. or a car or whatever. So I was teaching them how to do that kind of painting. And so it looked just like the scrolls were rolled up with the, with the shading and all that stuff. So that's that's how that scroll got put on the front of my car. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. It's it really was amazing back then because now of course we you know everybody wraps their cars. Um and that's okay. I mean I it I have it, it you can make a wrap look gorgeous, but I always respected the guys like Mike Kapazinski and some you know the guys who could paint a race car and make it just look so gorgeous by hand. <laughs> I have to tell you, you know, uh, when I married my wife, Bonnie, now here, she had a son that was about 13, 13 years old, okay? And he, you know, he heard that I was in racing, so he gets a hold of a tape. And on this tape, there's uh, Jack Burgess going, and here comes Brian Herman, a number, beautiful number 11. Here comes the beautiful. He finally he says, he says, you know something? I'm so tired of hearing about Brian Herman's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> It was so funny. And even today, he'll kid me about it, you know, when I see him. So it was, it was, you know, whenever he introduced me, he always said the beautiful super. And I thought, geez, give me some credit for driving. But no, yeah, really? it was always the beautiful super. Well, you know, it's uh, what's amazing is I can remember back in, in the mid 70s when you had the, the Swift replica car, as you called it, the tank. Um, you know, you had some good runs with that car. And I think we all saw the potential. And so in the early 80s, when you had the offset car and you know of course the uh the infamous night that you ended up beating doug haveron and finally winning a feature uh i think we all could have run up and hugged you at that point because we were all just so happy to see you finally get that win what do you remember about that time and that night in particular yeah i some of it's a haze afterwards but during the race, I, I let me let me say something first. Sure. When you're driving that race car and you're coming down that front straight, you got your foot right into it. That engine's roaring, and people would say, "Can you hear us clapping?" And I, I'd say, mm, "No, not really." 
I mean, if you're listening to other engines or cars around and you're focused. Twice I've heard the crowd when I was coming down the straightaway. Once when Eddie Bellinger, I think it was an 83, yep. was the last lap or close to the last lap of the um, the classic. classic. Yep, and the last the, lap. And Hebron, I don't run out of gas or yep, something. Sure did. Anyhow, yep. Eddie took over, and I when I come by, I could hear the crowd. They were just going wild. And the other time I heard them, is when I went back by Chevron or uh, Hebron, coming down the front street, I could hear them cheering again. The only two times I've ever heard that crowd cheer, and uh, and, uh, and and I was leading it, and we had a caution. You know, we had a red yeah. flag. Actually, we had a staff. And Jim comes over to me. He says, "Heaven's right behind me." I said, "No, he's right behind me." <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I can read the scoreboard <laughs> too. And I told him, I says, "Jim," he says. I says, Jim, I want you to, I says, Heron's going to get by me. I says, he's going to get by me, but I'm going to go back by him through three and four. So, and we took off, and sure enough, a lap later, he goes by me. Because on the restart, I, the car would not run low through three and four, but out in the second groove through three and four, it was dynamite. So when he ducked in, go through three and four, I just went on around him again. And of course, it was enough time that I held them off that I won the race. So those were the two times that, that I've heard. I remember hearing the cheering, and I says, "Wow, they must be really pulling for me or something." But of course, I w- I'm really worried. I'm trying to listen to hear his engine coming because right. you can hear somebody coming alongside you when you're driving. And I didn't hear him coming. And then I thought, "Geez, I hope I didn't cut him off." I hope I didn't wreck them. I hope I didn't do something really that made, you know, I don't believe you should outdrive the person. You shouldn't, you know, cut him off or do something. Right. If you know that's not good etiquette on your on driving. So uh, so the first thing I asked them, I said, did I cut a heaven off? And they said, no, you didn't cut him off. And that, so then, it, then I could enjoy the win. Well, it was uh, it was so hard earned and in such a long time coming. It was one of those wins where, like everybody loves a first time winner, and you backed it up. I think it was the following week because you came right back again and and almost pulled off another one, as I remember it. Yeah, yeah, we had uh, we had a little something wrong with the car. And I hate, you know, and I'm really mad at myself because when I walked, I 85, I didn't make the classic. We had a bent shaft in the rear rear end housing. We didn't know it. We thought it was a drive shaft. But I said, I'm going to park this and go build my house on the lake. And and when I walked away from it, my son took over. And as I'm looking at the car, a couple years later, I finally figured out. And I'm, don't ask me what it is because I'm not going to tell anybody. But I finally <laughs> figured out where that other half a second was in in that car. Really? Yep. yep. Wow. We did. We Jim Laris and I did things to that car. It would take two or three hours to tell you all the things that we did to that car that try and make it work. That were were just. Thank God I had the school because we had the machine shop, you know, we had the welding shop, we had all the stuff at our disposal, and we'd work on it after we got. And he was a teacher too, so we'd work on it after if the kids would go home. We'd work on the race car. That's awesome. And we, you know, we were just we tried so many things. It was really funny. We run the engine backwards for three years. 
Oh, wow. That was, you would have been one of the first to do that, right? I mean, that was. Well, we, we said when you step down on the gas, it lifts up the left side and puts the pressure over on the right side. We said, we'll reverse our engine so when you step on the gas, it'll put the pressure back over on the left side. And so it won't be transferring so much weight, you'll be able to go faster. Okay. And, and we, you know, so you have to get a rear end housing and you have to do, anyhow, in order to make the power steering work, you have to turn the pump around and face the engine with the pulley. And nobody ever said anything. We were up there for the classic one year. Guy pulls in next, we'd never seen him before. Hops out of his truck, looks at my ear, and he says, Oh, you run your engine backwards. First guy, I never, you know, just like that. I says, How did you know? He says, You're. Uh, power steering pumps turned around. You know, Interesting. And, and that was it just, you know, it it, it it helped a little bit, but it, it didn't matter which way you run the engine, really. In all real, on all reality, it doesn't matter. So it's really kind of uh, interesting for me as a fan, and again, remembering that I was, you know, I was five when I started going in 73, so, you know, between five and, you know, 15, 18 or so was your career, but it's interesting for me to think about looking back now, the fact that you did have access to machinery and things that probably most of the other guys didn't. And you were trying things that may have actually been perhaps a little ahead of the time. And it was just a matter of putting it all together for you to be able to get up front and, and run for wins. Okay, well, thank you for the compliment. I appreciate that. It's you know, it was, I, believe it or not, I spent 24 hours a day thinking about that race car. I bet. It, it was, it was an addiction to me. I couldn't stop myself. I'd be teaching the kids and half the, I'd be showing them it was so easy for me to do. The other half of my brain would be working on the race car. <laughs> you know, I'd be thinking about when I come into the corner, what did the car do? What does it need to do? Did I enter the corner the same, you know, or... or uh, and the other thing was money, tires. We just didn't have money for the tires. And, and let's face it, the only thing that touches the pavement is the tires, and you need yes. good tires. Yep. That's absolutely and we true. Would race. When we went in there, we would look at the, where we were finished, and if we made the feature, I'd go put a new tire on, cause I, on the right rear because I knew I was going to make enough money in that feature to pay for that right rear tire. Ah, okay. That's the way, that's the way we were running our thing. Well, when you finally now you you were uh, you were out for you had you had sold the car that you won the feature with to uh, I think it was uh, the Staley brothers um, and it became the uh, the twenty five car and then you ended up borrowing it back for the classic and had a top five in it uh, that was a pretty nice comeback with that. Yes, yeah, I wrecked the car, backed into a hub rail with the car the week before. I mean, I hit that ton, yeah. and there was no way we could get the car. So we called them up and, and asked them, and they said, okay, you know, we'll put the engine into it. We put an engine into it, and, and, and uh, I said, well, you know, let me drive for the Classic. And that's how they were, they were terrific people. The Canadians are terrific people. Yes, that's they are. They sure are. Yeah. Um, and then you just kind of, uh, I think maybe, did you race a little while longer after that? Or then, then you just kind of walked away. There wasn't a lot of fanfare. You just kind of stopped. 
Well, yeah, I was, man, I think I was 48 years old or something like that. And I said, you know something? I better start getting a house and everything so that when I stop racing, I don't, the only thing I have is an old race car. Yeah. So, uh, anyhow, that was, I think that bent shaft in that, that not finding it and not making the classic, it kind of said, you know, it's time to step back from this thing here. And uh, so that's what happened. But you want to hear another funny story? Of course. Absolutely. When I had the first car you were talking about that looked a lot like uh, Nolan Swift's car. Yep, the mid-70s car, yep. There was three of us that owned that. And uh, I'm not going to mention the other two names because I don't have their permission. But I was going to build it and drive it, and they were going to be kind of the sponsors for it. Okay. And one of the sponsors was a, uh, he drove a car out there, and he drove a Nolan Swift's car one night, or took it out and, and uh, run it around a few times, and he was the funniest guy to tell about that experience. And the other guy had never driven or built a car or anything, but he, he really loved racing. And as I, we're trying to get that car to work, and he was kind of frustrated. And he said to me one night, he says, I'm thinking about driving that car. And I says, yeah. And he says, yeah. And uh, he says, I can drive. I think I can drive that better than you, Brian. I says, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Oh, boy. Yeah, maybe. So anyhow, maybe. And this went on for a couple of weeks. Finally, he come over in the pits one night after a heat. I think it was in the first heat race. He come over in the pits. And he said, "I'm going to drive. I want to. I'm going to drive that car in the next race." I says, "You are?" He says, "Yes." I says, "Okay. I'll tell you what. You come on with me, and I'm going to help you so that you don't look foolish out there." Okay. So we walked over to the third, between three and four. There's a pole right there, and you could stand right next to the pole, and four feet away from you, the cars would go around that corner. And, and I stood over there one time and I watched, you know. So I got a hold of his arm. I got a, uh, and we're standing right there by the post. Four feet away, they're going to, they're right in the apex of that three and four and they're going to go around there. And I said, okay, watch them coming down the straightaway here. So they get pushed off and they're lined up and here they come. And I said, and he's watching them. And, and what people don't see from the stands is your car is wiggling sideways so you don't bump tires or you're trying to get in the, you know, you're trying to get in the groove to come through right. the corners and everything. And I called it dancing. You're dancing with the car. The car yeah. is rocking and jumping around a little bit. So they come down through and he's trying to get back for the second time down through there. They are up to speed and I really got a hold of his arm because I know what he's going to do. They come and, and they're dancing back and forth and around and they come down and they're letting off and going. And about the fourth lap and he's trying to get away and I said, no, come on, you got to watch these so you know what's going on. So finally I said, he said, no, I said, okay, let's go back and get you in the car. And we're walking back, and he used the F-bomb. He says, you F-bombs, are, you guys are absolutely insane out there. You never wanted to get in that car or nothing. It is such a different look from sitting up in those yeah. stands and walk there on that car. It is. Things happen out there so fast, you don't even see them from the stands. But that was, I thought that was funny. I said, either he's really going to be able to get in the car or he's not going to touch that car. And I knew he wouldn't touch that right. car. Right. Yeah, it is it is crazy. I remember the first year I was 
able to get in the pits was 1983. And I remember the very first time I went over and into the corner like that, just watching, and it's like, wow. (laughs) You know, because you look at a car and it comes in and you're watching the driver saw the wheel to keep it from breaking loose. And, you know, I can remember one night, Chris Purley, of course, you know, Chris, I think, is one of the craziest supermodified drivers that ever sat in a car. But I remember mm-hmm. him going through turn three one night, and I actually was, because <gasps> that car got so sideways, I was just waiting for him to just knock the wall over. And he just jerked the wheel a little bit, got it straight, just passed about four cars. I'm like, wow. that's uh, you know. So you really can see a lot better from the pits in terms of the the driving part of it and how hard the drivers have to work and back then you know as we talked about those cars were probably way less stable than the ones today of course so you you really saw who the drivers were and and who had the best car control because my gosh it it was it was crazy to watch them in the corners back then Oh, you you hit it right on the money. You you described it perfectly. You know, yeah, that's exactly the way it is. And the other thing, <clears throat> the people don't see a lot is your tires will go in between each other. You know, what I mean, you go through the corner and the in car comes over and might go in between your front tire and your back tire, and then he goes out and you don't. You just keep doing everything the same. Yeah. When you see it, you just say, "Hey, he's going to move over," or you know, "We're going to separate," and you keep right. You don't even think about it. It's amazing. Because when you touch tires on an open heel racer, one of them's going flying nine times out of ten when they're front to back. When I, that, that front wheel hits that back tire coming around, it lifts that front end up and sends you right up in the air. Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, and well, it, it, you've been there. You were there a time or two. I remember um, being on the front stretch and... I had, that was one of the saddest nights of my life at the track, was you had built this absolutely beautiful race car, one of the prettiest cars I'd ever seen in my life. And I remember you getting it up in the air with it the one night, and it just, I think it destroyed the car. But it was just like, oh, gosh, no, no, no. (laughs) I mean, I was glad you were okay, but oh, my, that car was so beautiful. And it just, it was like the perfect illustration for me of how quickly things can happen. And to watch it up close, again, from the stands, you don't get that perspective when you're looking straight at it from the inside and you're closer to where you guys are running. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was almost Mm -hmm. like watching it in slow motion, but I, I just, I felt so sick for you. That car was gorgeous. Well, I, you know, one of the things I did when I was, I would talk with the different drivers and everything and that were in an accident and I had never flipped my car. Okay. So I asked this one driver, I says, what's it like when you flip your car? He says, I'm going to tell you something, Brian. If you get upside down, the thing you want to do is put your hand above your head to catch it because when you release the belts, you're going to fall on your head. And I says, you're serious? He says, yeah, I'm telling you. And that night that I flipped the car over in three and four there, yeah, when I caught a wheel from uh, Jim, uh, I'm upside down, and I could hear the creaking and everything and we I set off the fire extinguisher just in case there was a fire and right. I couldn't see it so I set that off and I, and I said okay put your hand above your head release the belt sure enough I would have fed on my head fell on my head you know and I come crawling out 
and I remember how quiet everything was. Like, there was no noise anyplace, yeah. except the guys are asking me, are you hurt? Are you hurt? And all of a sudden, everybody started cheering. And, and, the, and the amazing the reason the car destroyed like that, it was designed to do that so it would take right. up the energy. Yes, exactly. Yep. You know, and, and it, I was reading in the paper, said I had a bruise. I didn't even have a bruise. I wow. didn't even have a bruise on me. Not a mark on me. And I looked at that car, and I said, boy, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. You're wow. supposed to be able to walk away from it. Yeah, that was that was a moment. I'm and I'm sure not one. I didn't mean to bring that up because it's obviously not a. But you you kind of segued into it perfectly when when you talked about the the competition of watching the cars in the corners and how the front end get, is easy. The front end to get up in the air. It just it just made me think of that. That was one of the the prettiest cars I've ever seen, and I thought. This is the car, Brian. This is, you know, it just looked like it was it was born to win and before you hardly ever had a chance to dial in. Uh Yeah. yeah. Crazy. I have to admit that that it didn't break my heart, but I was very sad because we spent a lot of time, you know, on that car and sure. putting that body onto it and everything. And uh, we were very proud. As a matter of fact, one of my best pictures that I don't try to keep too many pictures of them. I mean, I build them so uh, I have a picture in my mind, but I do have sure. pictures of that one, that white one with the purple and gold yeah. on it. Oh, that, that was pretty. I have to admit, gorgeous car, sure was. Um, did you ever have? the urge to race anything other than a super modified? Well, when I was, you know, 18, 19, I always wanted to go to Indianapolis, but I knew then that, you know, you need a lot of money yeah. to go there and, and you need a lot more experience than just having money. So, uh, uh, that's that would have been my ultimate goal probably. But, you know, as they got older and you, and life takes over, that wasn't going to happen. What you there was one time when I was in Sandusky that this guy come over and uh, was talking to me. And uh, he says, Brian, uh, what's your plans in the future anyhow? And I said, well, not too much. He says, uh, you want to go racing? And I says, well, what do you mean? He says, well... I just wondering what your plans are. I says, well, I got a lot of obligations right now that I have to take care of. I don't have, I'm not at liberty to go, you know, take off and go sure. racing. And come to find out, it was Tim Richmond's father just before he went to NASCAR. Oh, my. And I think he was setting up, He, you know, he was looking for crew members, I think, for his son. Oh, Okay. And I think he liked the way my car looked and how I, you know, built stuff like that. Well, I was going to say, it seemed like you had the engineering and the mindset to to be successful had you gotten an opportunity at that level. Yeah, it was, uh, well, one of the people that really helped me was Bill Hike. He was a genius. Anybody back in that era knows who Bill Hike is sure. or oh, was. Yeah. He's gone now, I understand. But yes. He would come up with a classic, and the first thing we do, we go get him, bring him over to the car, and we say, we got a heating problem here. We can't get the engine to stay cool. He looks at it, and he says, well, you need to do some things here. And I, so I say, he says, the first thing you got to do, you got to remember this, Brian, you got to have your radiator cap higher than the engine, than the, than the radiator is. The cooling system is really 
So he's described, because I told him, I said, we started off in 10 laps, everything good. By the 15th lap, we're boiling because we're running out of water. So he explained to me how to build it. And this was, this was when you run on Saturday night, you went up and warmed up, and, you know, touched your cars and stuff. And then you come back on Saturday for the time trials. Sure. And then Sunday you would race. Right. This was, this was Friday night. And, uh. I think I may. I mean, we're talking thirty-five years ago. So yeah. Even more than that, if you go into the race. Anyhow, he showed he he described the the, the uh, cooling system to him, and uh, so Jim and I went back to the school. And we I could go into the school. I was allowed to go into school anytime. We get out this. We get out our equipment, and I, we built a new cooling system for that car that night. Wow. So, so we go up the next day. And uh, I take it out, and I come back in, and I says, Jim, I can't get it over 140 degrees. I says, I can't run it. I mean, as hard as I'm running, and I said, I can't run it wide open because it isn't warm enough. And I look over, and about 20 feet away, there's Bill Hyde looking at me, and he's laughing. He's laughing. And Jim says, of course, he says, we're running too much alcohol in it. We've been trying to cool it with alcohol in the, in the engine. He says, now we can put some, we can lean it down some. So he leaned it down. I thought I got 20 more horses instantly. Wow. In the, you know, and um, Bill Light was right. He knew what to do. And what he says, he even said, he said, you'll probably have to put a little uh, smaller pill in there. It'll be too rich. You know, and he's just smiling and laughing. That's funny. I, I just, I just, admire that guy tremendously yeah he was really uh an innovator in a day when innovation was king i mean you could literally build anything and attempt to race it and of course the four-wheel drive car would have no doubt probably become the standard had it had time to really fully develop um and you know then he built the one after it that could either be two or four and that one for whatever reason, just didn't seem to ever work. But um, but he really was an innovator, and it was back then. It was a lot of fun. You had a lot of different designs and a lot of different uh, kind of mindsets at work. And as a fan, I mean, it was delicious back then to look at all the cars and watch them run. Yeah, you know, going back to your question at the beginning of this here program, one of the things you said about what made me interested in up there, one of the things I liked is you run what you brought. Yeah. And I thought that was great because those that work on and think about them are going to do better than those that take them home and wipe them off Saturday morning and bring right. them back Saturday night. Exactly. And that was one of the things I liked about Oswego. I mean, there was rear engines, Oldsmobile engines, Buick engines, yeah. Chevy engines, Ford engines, you name it. And the thicker the rule book got, the less fun it got. Well, sure, because it became a smaller and smaller box then, and then the gentleman uh, who could innovate and who really were kind of engineering minded had less room to sort of experiment and, and try things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you had quite a career though, overall. I mean, when you think about the amount of time that you raced and, and, uh, I'm sure that, you know, like the rest of us, we always wish, that we could have done this better or that better or that would have worked out different or whatever. But, uh, I mean, overall, you really had a, a good career, and I'm sure a whole lot of fun with it all. Well, there's ups and downs. 
when you when you did good, it was up. But when you run into the wall, you were down. Sure. I mean, it's it's and it's like you say, it can be within three seconds from one thumb to the <laughs> other. But uh, I, I was very fortunate. I had Jim Laris as my head wrench, and then I run into the McGarrys. They had a fabulous garage that I. What the school finally said, Brian, you got to take it out of here. Oh. Not because I was doing anything wrong. It was it was something in the state politics that said you you weren't allowed to have any personal equipment from your own. If you had it, take it out of there. So, But they let me stay two more years after they told me I had to go. So <laughs> I, I, really, I really loved my uh, bosses that I had there at school. But when I took it out, I had a one-car garage. And with the tires on it, you couldn't walk around the car. With oh, wow. Big wide tires on and I bumped into Joe McGarry, and he says, bring it over to my garage. I says, you're kidding me. And he says, no, bring it over. I got this big garage. He says, come on over and look at it. So I go over and look, and I go like, wow, <laughs> from my one-car garage to like a eight-car garage, you know? Yeah, it was and interesting. So I went over there with it in uh, 81. I think it was 81 when I went over. I took it over there. And uh, so we, we had a, a great time there. During the time we there, they were very helpful to McGarry's on, on my career and running the car and working hard on it. Super nice people, and it was interesting. That, of course, Joe used to drive, and then he worked with Swifty at the tail end of Nolan's career, and then with you. And that's you know he was with you when you had those couple of years there at the end where you were running for wins and did win, and <laughs> um, and then he went on to build his own car and, and, you know, had a very successful run as a car owner with a number of different drivers, won a classic with Warren Conium. So it was interesting to kind of see that, that evolution for him as well. Well, uh, he had a son that was just a genius. Joe McGarry had a son there. And he was taking three courses at Syracuse University like electrical engineer, aeronautical, and, and another one, I can't think of the name of it. And he was uh, four old, all of them. He was, and the Syracuse University hired him to go back there. Either. Oh, wow. I mean, this kid was brilliant, and he was working on the car. So I feel, and this is only guesswork on my part, but the car they came out was a copy of my car with a few little things that they wanted to put into it. Because, uh, I mean, they they knew my car, the measurements, and everything else about it. Sure. And, and they built a car, like, in two weeks or three weeks or something like that. And you can't do that unless you've got some sort of plan of what you're going right, to do. Right, right. So, uh, and I was happy that they were successful because Joe had some tough times when he was racing. Sure did. You know, and, he, and he was finally, you know, with his sons and, and everything. And Conium is just a super driver. He's, he is right up there with Champagne and yeah, I agree. Swifty and all those guys. I agree. Yeah, we uh, we had a – Warren was always a favorite of mine. Jimmy, Jimmy and Warren were the two that, that sort of stuck out w- with me when I first started going as a kid, and they both treated me – very very well as a fan i mean you know as a little you know little young passionate uh addict of the super modifieds and you know they they learned my name and would you know would treat me as if they were they were happy to see me every week and and warren um boy he just it didn't matter what he got into he seemed to get more out of it than anybody else could and that was a a deal in 87 where he 
gosh, I mean, he got into it late in the year, and um, by the time the Classic came around, it was as good as anything on the racetrack, and, and those two seemed to hit it off, which, which you know, again, you just love to see when that happens, and it was it was really poignant to see Warren basically win the Classic and say, that's it, I'm done. Uh, you know, what a way to go out. <laughs> Well, that was always one of his goals, and uh, which is any anybody goes there would like to win that class. Sure, you know, yep. you're in the record book forever. Yep. But, and so, in Borneum, Warren is like that. We let him drive our car. Uh, we were working on the car to go to Star, and we work like we we would work around the clock. There was no doubt about it. And when we got to Star, we were late, and so Joe says, uh, Warren's here. Why don't you let him drive your car? Because we, we were just exhausted. So I I, uh, I don't know. You know, one of the reasons I do all this because I like to drive like it. The drive, so anyhow, Warren come over and everything, and we talked about it. And I says, uh, you, you want to drive my car? And I, yeah, I'd like to drive it. My ride is something happened or it didn't show up. I'm not sure. I don't remember those exact words. But I told him, okay, Warren, I'm going to let you drive it. But you got to do one thing for me. And he says, what's that? I says, you got to wear earplugs. And he says, what? <laughs> and, and Bill Height turned me on to this here. Uh, I says, you're going to wear earplugs driving my car. Well, okay, I will, but, you know, he, he didn't like it. So anyhow, he goes out and warms it up, brings it in, and... Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't say it at that time. He went out warm. He says, that ain't bad. He says, I think it'll work. It'll work good. I says, okay. For the future, I want you to put these earplugs in. And he wasn't too wild about that, but he did. And he told me exactly what he was going to do. At this lap, I'm going to be, and he was, I think he was starting like seventh or eighth. He said, on this lap, I'll be seventh. And on this lap, I'll be sixth. And on this lap, I'll be fifth. And on this lap, I'll be fourth. And I'm watching him, and I'm counting him. And everything he said, he did it exactly that. Wow. And he come in, you know, and they split the race. It's half, you know, they run half of it, and then you stop and refuel, and they run the other half. So we go out and fuel it on the track, and he gets out of the car and takes his helmet off and everything. I says, okay. He says, we're going to win this race. No problem, Brian. We got this where you won. Wow. I said, Okay. So they said, okay, driver's back in the car. And he climbs back down in and gets the belts on. All of a sudden, the belts come flying off. He climbs back out again. He reaches in his suit and gets out those earplugs and put them back in. He forgot to put them in. Oh, wow. And that's the difference. When you have them earplugs in, you're a half a second faster almost. Now, why is you that, Brian, for the fans? You, you don't, don't, I understand. You don't hear all the things, the noise and the exhaust and the squeaks sure. and everything else that distracts you. Yep. It allows you to focus more on what you're looking at in front of you. Your your subconscious isn't reading all these other things, feeding it into your brain. And what a difference. I never drove the car after that without them earplugs in. That's never funny. Did I, wonder I, I, I regret that I ever drove it without the earplugs because I have trouble hearing now. I wonder if Warren started wearing them all the time after that. Uh, that would be an interesting question to ask Warren because... I can fully relate to it, and in fact, there's a driver who races in in the small block division right now at a swig of the SBS division, Andrew Shartner, who is 80% deaf, and people find it hard to believe 
that he's able to to drive the way that he does without being able to hear everything and and as he describes it you he he's learned of course you know this was from birth for him so he wears mm-hmm. hearing aids but he can't wear them in the car but what happens is he can he can feel vibrations so he can tell for example if the motor's not right because the vibration he feels isn't what he's used to so he knows something is amiss and um and again he's able he's got he wears you know he's able to kind of hear the one-way radio with um he has earpieces that are obviously fit to his ears and they go deep down in so he can hear enough but he can't hear like you he he couldn't hear can't hear anything else to distract him and so he's able to kind of clear his mind and focus on what he's doing it's amazing that more people haven't figured that out but it seems kind of counterintuitive because everybody wants to hear the motor coming or whatever to to be able to judge where they are or who's close to them um but it it would it would seem like it would be um better not to be able to hear those things because then you can watch and and focus on what you're doing much more so than when you're distracted by the noise uh, what you're saying is absolutely true, I feel. They said something about there's a certain vibration or a certain pitch in there that the hearing aids take out so you don't. But, you, I mean, you can still hear your engine running. Yeah. You can, you know, see. But it's the little things that it, it, when you sit in a super modified, the exhaust comes out, and it's right, it comes out right where you're sitting. Yeah. I mean, you look over left and right, there's your exhaust pipe where the noise is coming from. It takes that really growl out of there. Yeah. You can still hear your engine and everything. But what a difference it makes driving. When you, you, you take a 200 lap, when you get out of there, you're lucky you can hear anything. Yeah. That's for, amazing. You know, you're in there for two and a half hours, or say, or something, and hearing those pipes working and everything. And uh, it just it just was amazing when Bill Heiss says, just try it, Brian. And I, okay, Bill, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and once again, the guy is the guy was just spot on. Very perceptive, yeah. yeah. I, was, I, I, I was so glad that we would talk and, and discuss things because there was a lot of people that uh, were kind of scared of him or something like, you know, <laughs> and he was the nicest guy. And one of the things he said... Um, I would see people, I'd be talking to people who come up and, and they were from the stands and everything, and he would listen to them. And when they walked away, finally one day I said to Bill, I says, Bill, you listen to everybody that comes up here. They aren't even as smart as you are. He says, let me tell you something, Brian. He says, I listen to everybody. And you never know when somebody who doesn't even know what they're telling you will give you a clue of the problem you've been working on yeah. that you couldn't even see. And I thought, you know, if a guy that smart can say that, I think I Brian how to listen to it. So anybody would come up and talk to me, I would listen to him. Well, yeah, because you never knew when somebody say, you know, this is what you know. I see a way to do that, and you, you don't even realize you were doing that type thing. And yeah. You go, oh my God, I am doing that. You yep. know? Yep. So um, everybody you know, has a a perspective, and sometimes they don't know what it means or how it would be relevant, but I just thought you'd like to know this is what I'm seeing. And, you know, sometimes you can make something. I remember a fan, I remember reading a story about Richie Evans at, I think it was Shangri-La one night. Um, George Kent was was going great guns and Richie couldn't figure out how to stay with him. And just before the feature, somebody came up to him and said, 
why aren't you doing this? And Richie said, well, I've never done that here. And, well, that's what George is doing, and he seems to be faster than you. And Richie said, really? And Richie went out and started doing whatever the, the gentleman suggested and ended up winning the race. Um, you know, again, sometimes you can't, from inside the car, you don't realize because you're so busy doing it and somebody sees it and it's like, wow, didn't realize that. Uh, so I, I think in a way having spotters is good, uh, even if we don't want them to uh, actually spot the race for us. I think it's good having people watch what we do and watching what others do and kind of giving us a clue where maybe they might be faster than we are. And, and you know, well, it looks to me like he's doing this. Oh, okay. So you try that and all of a sudden you're faster. Absolutely. You're, you know, you're, you're spot on. People, it doesn't take you long to tell if somebody really knows what they're talking about or right. they're genuine history or if they're trying to puff you a little bit. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, you're right. You know, you, I listen to everybody. Anybody talks to me, I stop and listen to them, you know, and uh, you never know. Exactly. You just never know. Well, it might be a sponsor coming over to see how how you how well you converse. That says, "Hey, I'd like to put a tire on your car." Yeah, you yep. never know. That's a very good point, and uh, it was always a pleasure to watch you race, Brian. And and it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you and just kind of relive your career a little bit and get some perspective. Uh, and uh, we're thankful for the opportunity to to sit back and talk to you. I know. One of the reasons I brought this show back uh, was I wanted to to talk with drivers like yourselves, legends as I call them, the the drivers who kind of helped build the the speedway in that era of the sixties, seventies, and uh, and and even early eighties. And um, it is it is so cool to be able to just sit back and listen to you tell the stories and and um, and gain some perspective about what was going on behind the scenes of what I was seeing from the grandstand as a child. Well, uh, thank you very much. And I, w- I felt honestly, and I've talked to several fans and things, and we thought the drivers around the middle 80s you might, were some of the very best drivers oh, ever yeah. to go on that yeah. track. Yeah. And to be even associated with them, I'm very proud. Uh, I mean, I would like to thank all the people in the stands that were rooting for me, pulling for me, and and uh, I appreciated it. And I hope they, uh, I want them to know that I thank them very much. Well, we wish you and your family nothing but the best. And of course, we uh, we enjoy seeing you at the uh, reunions each year, and we especially look forward to uh, this year and because uh, we've got the Red Creek Rocket coming back. Kempton going to have the championship car uh, rebuilt and ready to, to pace the field that night. And uh, it's always cool to see another older car restored like that. And, and so this year is going to be a pretty special retro night at the Speedway. Well, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Yeah, sure does. Yes, it does. Yeah, and he's yep. just, uh, it's great to see the smile on his face as he's been able to start putting this together. And, and uh, so, again, we appreciate your time, Brian, and uh, we wish you and your family uh, nothing but the best and good health and look forward to uh, seeing you later this year at the reunion. Okay, right back at you. Thank you very much. And that's Brian Herb. We'll be back with more of Inside Groove right after this. Everyone knows Strutmasters is the suspension experts for luxury vehicles, and now we offer motorcycle products. 
Introducing Easy Rider, complete motorcycle air suspension brought to you by strutmasters.com. You can raise and lower your bike with the flip of a switch. Take those long rides with the ultimate comfort of Easy Rider air shocks. They're backed by Strutmasters, and you won't believe the low price. Check out Easy Rider motorcycle air suspension at strutmasters.com. Welcome back to Inside Groove. We hope that you enjoyed that interview with Brian Herb. We apologize that we couldn't uh, pull Double O Joe Gosick back in for part two of his interview. We promise that we'll get to that uh, in the first episode that we can make it possible. Um, I kind of had a double whammy last week. Uh, you can tell my voice is still not fully back intact here, but it was um, it was in and out big time last week. In fact, for about the last two weeks. I've uh, had a bout of the Carolina crud, as they like to call it down here. Um, and on top of all that, I was assigned last week or was asked and obviously felt obligated to accept the uh, responsibility of covering news for WSIC, the station that I'm partnered with um, this past week as well, because uh, Margaret Beveridge, our normal news girl, was out on a cruise. So <laughs> while she was out getting a lot of sun on the sea, um, I was uh, working the voice overtime, so to speak. So um wasn't able to uh, make things happen with Joe. We, he and I both tried uh, just with my extra responsibility. My schedule just didn't work out with his. So, uh, again, I apologize. We'll have that as soon as we can bring it to you. We're also working on uh, pulling Jeff West in here, hopefully before the end of the week. And um, that'll be hopefully our next episode. But Joe and Jeff are both in our near future. And I've got a couple of other drivers uh, in the mix as well. So we're pretty well set for um, driver guests going forward here for the next several episodes. And as long as I can stay healthy and um, we can uh, stay in good, timely manner here with when we can get the interviews, we'll hopefully not miss any more weeks for a while. Um, Hate that uh, we've had kind of this on and off schedule here, but uh, we promise we'll try to keep things intact. And the goal is to have this show come out on Wednesday nights every week. Just so all of you know, that's uh, what we're working toward. We've got the new mainly modifieds podcast that we just launched. Um, That is scheduled to come out on Tuesday nights and this show on Wednesday nights. And then of course we'll have the racer safety resource podcast that we're going to launch either in March or early April we're working on all of that right now. Uh, that will be a monthly podcast to start. So it'll be once a month, a one new episode a month uh, until we kind of get that going a little bit and can uh, get a more steady guest list. And then, of course, on Monday nights, we have our lead lap radio show that airs live nationally. Uh, and uh, Thursday night, we have Motorsports Madness, which is our flagship show that is... Uh, Uh, syndicated on the weekends and goes out to uh, about a million. I think we're averaging about a million two now, a million 200,000 people. Um, It's, I still can't believe I get to say that, but uh, that's the one that's on Sirius XM on Saturday nights, channel 211, the Dan Patrick show channel. Uh, I think it's seven o'clock that airs and it's also on American forces radio and such. That's our national show. The Monday night show is a local show, um, locally based show. We try to do a lot of Carolinas racing on that, but it's also, Lead Lap is also a show where you hear a lot of different stories, different people um, kind of from all across motorsports. Um, and we try to uh, put a lot of the younger talent on that show as well. So it's a lot of fun to do. 
Uh, and that's also where you'll hear me rant about things occasionally. <laughs> that's the uh, show that I host solo. So uh, Monday nights, it's League Lap. Tuesday nights, mainly Modifieds. Wednesday nights, Inside Groove. And Thursday nights, Motorsports Madness. Uh, that's, uh, that's the hoped-for lineup of shows here, as long as we can keep everything going on time. And really, really excited to uh, to keep this going and really uh, pumped for the season at Oswego and ISMA's new schedule, love that, MSS, uh, working hard to try to get to the June race in Indianapolis, and I'm working on some interesting things for that. Hopefully, I will have some good news about that race uh, at some point in the near future, so um, trying to make sure that we have good coverage of that one. That's going to be a big event with the Supers and the must racing sprint cars and uh, the other series that are running their uh, Super Cup stock car series, and then the uh, the Midwest Touring Compact series. That's a it's a great four series bill there, and uh, looking forward to getting out there in June. And so, working on some things to um, some ways to bring some extra coverage of that event. So we'll we'll keep you updated on all of that. Uh, and again, I just want to thank all of you who listen and share. I can't stress enough how important it is both to share the content every one of you please share it each week share our show and then also uh if you can um you know everybody go and if you haven't liked and, and followed us on facebook inside group uh, podcast facebook page uh on twitter if you're on twitter give us a follow uh, and of course you know soundcloud as well comment on the shows the more interactions we get the better it is our sponsors want to see that and, of course, please support all of our sponsors, IPCIndy.com um, and uh, Skip's Fish Fry and JNS Paving. They are keeping this show going and hoping to have a couple of new ones to announce here in the next few weeks as well. So things are uh, kind of moving along nicely here as long as I can stay healthy. So have a great rest of your week and weekend, everyone. And looking forward to uh, hopefully having Cam back next week. If we get some Speedway news to announce, uh, we'll have Cam back on next week's show. So that'll wrap it up for this episode of Inside Groove, a little shorter one for you all to digest. We hope that you enjoy Brian Herb. That was so much fun to do. Brian is a nice guy, and I always loved watching him race. Always had the most beautiful cars at the track. So uh, really thankful that he would uh, take some time out of uh, his day to sit and chat with us. Have a great weekend, everybody. I'm Tom Baker. So long. You've been listening to Inside Groove, powered by IPC Indy, creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Find them on the web at www.ipcindy.com. Inside Groove is a Race Chaser Media production. For more exciting and passionate motorsport content, follow Race Chaser Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and visit RaceChaserMedia.com. The opinions expressed by our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff, management, affiliates, or marketing partners of Race Chaser Media. No part of this show may be reproduced in any manner without the expressed written consent of Race Chaser Media. Thank you for listening.